Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and it is really a delight for me to be able to spend some time with Robert Wagoner and to introduce you to his remarkable work. Um, so I want to start by just sharing a little bit about who Robert is and then just jump right in because there is just a lot of stuff that uh, we can talk about. So Robert is the author of the acclaimed book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self, which is now in its 10th printing. He's also the co-author of the award-winning book, Lucid Dreaming, Plain and Simple, with Caroline McCready. Both books are available in a number of different um, audible formats, and they have been translated into a number of different languages, including French, German, Chinese, Korean, Czech, and Finnish. Robert is a past president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, and he actively serves as a co-editor of the online magazine, The Lucid Dreaming Experience, which is really the only ongoing publication devoted specifically to lucid dreaming. A lucid dreamer since 1975, Robert has logged more than 1,000 lucid dreams. He frequently speaks on the science and practice of lucid, lucid dreaming at international dream conferences, workshops, in college classrooms. And so, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, I am really impressed with the body of your work, your dedication to this topic, and the fact that uh, you have had such an extensive personal history with this material. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, it's just great to be here. I appreciate the uh, invitation. Yeah, truly. And so I want to start, I'm always so interested, as, as our listeners are, with how people got interested in this um, topic. Because, you know, for many, it still remains somewhat on the fringe, a little bit esoteric. But um, as you and I both know, it has just such tremendous potential for psychological, um, spiritual, and even physical development. So can you give us a brief Riff on what turned you on to lucid dreaming? What were the pivotal experiences in your life that turned you towards this direction? Right. So uh, if you can imagine this, uh, back in 1975, I was a junior in high school, and I was reading the third book by Carlos Castaneda, Journey to Ixtlan. And in that book, his shamanic teacher, Don Juan, tells him that he can find his hands in the dream state and become consciously aware of dreaming. And I, I wondered, is this really possible? Could you could you find your hands in the dream state? But as I looked for a technique, there really wasn't a technique. And so um, I knew about the power of suggestion. So each night before I'd go to sleep, I'd, I'd just look at the palms of my hands while repeatedly in my mind, quietly saying, tonight in my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. Tonight in my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. And I'd do that for about five minutes and fall asleep. On the third night of doing this practice that I created, um, I'm walking through my high school hallway, and suddenly, just like they're spring-loaded, my hands pop right in front of my face, and I go, oh, my hands, this is a dream. Oh. And, and it, it was so incredible to realize that those football players over there, uh, they, were, they were dream figures, and, and this wall that felt so cool and nubby, just like it should, was, was actually dream stuff. And, and so I, I stepped out of, uh, I think it's the B Hall at Hutchison High School, stepped out of it, and I was looking at the brick on the administration building because the detail was so just profound. And so suddenly the lucid dream began to shake, like it was getting ready to collapse. 
And that's when I remembered that um, Don Juan had said uh, not to stare at anything for too long. But if you did, just look back at your hands uh, to uh, increase the power of dreaming or to, to continue the dream. And when I looked back at my hands, the most incredible thing happened. Suddenly, I became a dot of awareness floating through the palm, the palm print of my hand. And it was so wild to look up, knowing that I was in the palm print of my hand and see these kind of uh, flesh-toned canyons that I was maneuvering through. And then finally, I, I kind of uh, willed myself back to normal size, decided to go fine, got so excited I woke up. So that, that was my very first uh, consciously induced lucid dream back in April of 1975. Well, that's pretty impressive. That's, uh, that's a, quite the big bang to get you started in this. And you know, one thing, Robert, that's really struck me with your work, um, and this is what uh, some of the topics I want to cover with you, is just the scope of what you cover. You're, you're one of these really innovative researchers and oneironauts who is – uh, completely attuned to the potentialities of these nocturnal practices and how they're much more than just mere entertainment, which is usually, as, as we both know, how lucid dreaming is marketed and sold. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of sexy and it's cool and it's the ultimate in home entertainment, but your work is unique in that it really does create such a wide lens. And in particular for me, Robert, what I was struck with when I read your work was how confluent a great deal of it was to um, so-called Eastern thought, and in particular my um, familiarity with the Tibetan Buddhist practices of dream yoga and sleep yoga. And you, you, you immediately just pinged on it right here when you talk about um, your experience as a dot of awareness, because you know, I'm sure you know at this point, these dots of awareness in the Tibetan language are called bindus, and they're uh, sometimes like essence, and sometimes they're called mind pearls, or you know, referred to as the essence of awareness. And so for, for you to actually have that um, is, is just really fantastic, because it shows that when we explore these deeper dimensions of, of mind, that um, there's a kind of a commonality, a trans- um, disciplinary, even trans-religious commonality. And so for you to come across these things and, and to riff on them the way you do is, I think, really uh, pretty encouraging for me. Um, and so I want to come back to some of those other connections later, but in your you know, ex extensive experience over these many decades, um, and it's difficult to probably answer this, but what has impacted you the most with your exploration of uh, the nocturnal mind? Well, um in my first book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self, um, um, I try to talk a little bit about my journey deeper into lucid dreaming. And um, so, again, I, I became lucidly aware uh, consciously for the first time in 1975. But everyone should think that the scientific evidence for lucid dreaming did not emerge until five or six years later, basically right. in 1981. And, and so for five years... Um, I was having lucid dreams, learning about the methods, the principles, how to stabilize the lucid dream, how to move and influence things, how to do all sorts of things. And, and so uh, the, the beauty of having to do it all by yourself is that you learn the lessons so well. Uh, you don't read them in a book. You don't just accept somebody else's uh, uh, secondhand opinion. You learn it firsthand. And so, so the some of the most impactful things were that in 1985, um, I was part of a lucid dreaming group 
that every month we had a practice or a, or a goal to achieve. And, and this went on for three years. Each, each month would have a new goal. And, and it was the spring of 1985. And that month, the goal was find out what the dream figures in your lucid dream represent. Yeah. And so I thought, I thought that's a piece of cake. I, I can do that. And so, so I, I became lucidly aware, uh, followed a woman into an office, uh, walked up to a man in a three-piece suit and asked him, excuse me, what do you represent? Right. And at that moment, I felt so stunned when a partial response came booming out of the space high above him. And and I found this so perplexing that I I asked it for a full response, and then it boomed out the full response. And um, I, I felt quite surprised that the dream figure did not respond, that the the space above him boomed out a response. No. And so after that, um, I began to wonder, is there an awareness behind the dream? Right. Because in waking life, we're, we're conditioned or socialized to interact with you know people and pets and things. And and to think that there might be an awareness behind the dream that you could interact with in a lucid dream just just seemed quite profound. But but that's what I discovered is uh, after that I in lucid dreams I would just ignore the dream figures and shout out a question uh, to the larger awareness like show me something important for me to see and then suddenly something would occur in the lucid dream or the entire lucid dream would change and I'd be looking at something important to see. And I began to explore it deeper. You know, could you experience concepts? And 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 I was just stunned at this new level of lucid dreaming, because before, when you interact with dream figures, you'll find that they're very um, they're very varied. Uh, all dream figures are not created equal. <laughs> some of them, some of them are are, are uh, uh, non-responsive. Uh, don't have any glint of awareness in their eyes. But but others are so responsive and so so thoughtful and intelligent that that uh, you have to really think about what they're telling you. But but that was my first uh, hint that there was really something truly powerful there. And uh, so I kept going deeper. And then after, as I mentioned in my book, after about twenty years, I realized that lucid dreaming was a co-created experience uh, of the ego waking self uh, along with the larger awareness and that every dream was a co-creation of the self and the larger awareness and even the waking experience was a co-creation of the self and the larger awareness and that's when i decided um to try to go beyond lucid dreaming and um in, in my book i mentioned the the vast array of strange experiences that began to happen then but basically uh spending the whole night in the light and, and uh, not actually having dreams at all. So so th- those are some of the um, hallmarks along the way, but uh, th- there's been there's been a lot of them. When, when you have 40 years of lucid dreaming, you, you can find a lot of impactful stuff. Yeah, you start to rack up some, some incredible stories. And I, I have to share, Robert, very briefly, um, I want to develop this a little bit with you. I, I, I had a, a quite a compelling series of lucid dreams. I just came back from Korea. And that the jet lag and whatnot um, interrupted my sleep in a really kind of wonderful way. And I had just a host of really long extended, what I sometimes call hyperlucid dreams. And one in particular that's completely resonant with what you're talking about was I had one just a couple of days ago where 
I was going, it was a pretty strong lucid dream and I was going downstairs, um, which again is somewhat symbolic, kind of dropping into this kind of seedy environment, this kind of uh, sailor's type bar. And there were, there were a bunch of, you know, kind of gnarly, gritty, weather beaten type of characters in there, you know, kind of edgy feeling. And as, and as I came down and, and kind of, you know, came up to them, I, I, I looked at them for a while and then I said, hey, like, you know, who are you guys? Like, what are you doing here? And there was this, uh, you know, pause, kind of a long pause. And then, and then one of the characters says, in this heavy Australian accent, he said, "Hi, mate. We're just your unconscious mind." And it was bloody fantastic because, you know, here, here I was thinking I'm somewhat evolved in my psycho spiritual path, and of course. You know, these were indicative or representative of these kind of uh, seedy, shady elements of my unconscious mind making themselves present. And as we know, this, you know, the, one of the characteristics of a lucid dream, sometimes also deferred as a hybrid state of consciousness, is in fact a unique opportunity for the conscious mind to face the unconscious mind directly. But if you could say a little bit more about um, when you ascribe, what to, to what do you ascribe this kind of background awareness? Do you, do you ascribe it to just the deeper dimensions of your own unconscious mind, or is there an attribution to what you see as this kind of background of your actual dreamscape? Have you have you thought about it or articulated it? Well, um, so, so, so just to uh, discuss it, I mean, there's a number of ways a person could conceive of it, uh, but but when you begin to interact with the, I just call it the larger awareness or the awareness behind the dream, mm-hmm. um, you, you realize that it can show you things. Uh, for example, in my second book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, Plain and Simple, uh, my co-author, Carolyn McCready, once she becomes lucid and she announces, hey, dream, show me my greatest fear. And suddenly, she said, in front of her, there was death. And so I, I believe it was death in the form of the hooded man with the, with the scythe and the whole thing. And she said she got so freaked out seeing her greatest fear that 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 she spontaneously woke. And then when she rolled over in bed, uh, guess who was laying by her? Death. She had she had had a false awakening, uh, and then she woke up for good. Beautiful. But but she said when she when she woke up, she realized that that death really was one of her great fears, or probably her greatest fear. And so she began to read books about death and dying and and how to. Uh, think about it and, and kind of come to terms with it. And then I, I believe it was about a month later, she, she, she reported that uh, she became lucidly aware. And this time she shouted out, hey, dream, show me my greatest fear. And once again, death appeared. And this time she looked at death and she had a feeling of understanding and comprehension and she said, as she basically accepted uh, the necessity for death, death stepped towards her, and she said she stepped towards death, and as they met, uh, just the room exploded in delight. And, and oftentimes you see this when you accept a dream figure or, or a projection uh, of yourself. But, but, but the reason I bring this up is that this background awareness it's just not random. It just doesn't randomly cough up responses or images or whatever. Uh, oftentimes, they're they're very very appropriate to the person who makes the request. And also, there's many numerous occasions, um, like 
in my book, I mentioned uh, Pascal Artain. Uh, she has a big website, LD for All. And, and w- once in a lucid dream, she shouted out, show me the beginning and end of the universe. <laughs> then, then, then the non-visible voice, which is what I call the awareness behind the dream, this non-visible voice replied, the universe has no beginning and has no end. The universe is an everlasting cycle. Yeah, and and so you'll see that this larger awareness also refutes um, uh, presumptions or assumptions, and, and will we'll offer um, alternative uh, ideas instead. And so when you really get into it, you realize that this background awareness, whether it's the collective unconscious or a person's inner self, or heaven forbid, the soul, whatever it is, whatever it is this this larger awareness, it actually cares about the person it it's uh, very thoughtful it um it 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 meets all these characteristics that that jung carl jung uh, identified as what you would have to show to identify a second psychic system within man it, it shows all those characteristics of judgment reflection affectivity memory imagination will all of those things in subliminal form so so it's it's really uh quite profound and and the reason i think it's profound uh, as i get on my soapbox just a little bit longer it is because it allows us to expand the identity of what we conceive of as the self exactly and and uh when we begin to expand the identity of what we conceive of as the self then I think we come into more of our whole person and we just don't end up this waking ego, conscious, whatever thing. Uh, we realize that there's more going on here. Yeah, that's really that's really well said. And, and a couple of things just to, to um, kind of interject. Uh, I think most people are familiar with the term false awakening, but some may not. And so for those of you who are not aware, aware of that term that Robert used, a false awakening is when you wake up from a dream, thinking that you've woken up to reality only to have this kind of startling revelatory discovery that, in fact, what you've woken up to is yet another dream. So obviously this is typified in like movies like Inception. Sometimes I think I, I refer to them, uh, Robert, as recursive dreams, you know, dreams held within dreams, um, which, as you know, within the wisdom traditions goes exceptionally profound because, you know, the idea with these traditions is that, in fact, when we wake up from the so-called nighttime dream, um, we're still, if we see the world dualistically, if we see it as solid lasting, we're still asleep in so-called daytime um, reality. So that, in fact, is a false awakening to which and from which the, the Buddhas, the awakened ones, as you know, woke up from. Um, and so it, it's a wonderful intimation of psychospiritual development altogether. Um, and it's, in fact, one of the, the ways that uh, Buddhist tradition in particular uses the nighttime dream, you know, it's used as what's referred to as a, a an example dream or a double delusion as a way to extrapolate the insights into the so-called primary dream or real delusion, which is so-called waking reality. Um, but I really I want to explore further. I and mean, what you're saying is just so compelling, completely resonant with my view. And this idea of, you know, this larger awareness is your suggesting is is that these deeper dimensions is utterly transpersonal. Um, you know, it's it's it kind of suggests not only what Jung referred to as the collective unconscious, but especially in the Buddhist tradition, what could be referred to as the collective superconscious, that um, even below what Jung referred to as this kind of, kind of common bed of mind, quote unquote, 
um, to which not only all humans, but all sentient beings arise and return to. Um, and so to me, I mean, that's what's so cool about what you do, Robert, is, is that you take your um, kind of training, your your understanding, and your reading, and your experience, and you just, you just blow the doors wide open to the world of lucid dreaming. And that's what I found so illuminating and so rich. And so in addition to what you were talking about, you know, what has impacted you, I suppose this is another way to ask it. What has surprised you the most? I mean, have you had some experiences in, in your um, adventures as a lucid dreamer that really surprised you or even um, scared you? <laughs> well, um, one thing that you learned uh, quite early on in lucid dreaming um, is, that, is, that, uh, is that fear is like an invisible fence. Um, we all stay within our comfort zone, even in the lucid dream, uh, and it's it's only by confronting our fears and resolving them uh, do we begin to grow. Do we allow that kind of mental or psychic space to grow and keep growing and growing and growing? Uh, and so I I learned early on in lucid dreams that um, that that fear. Uh, led to shutting down, fear led to retreat, fear led to um, a lack of growth, and, and, and that, that just wasn't where I was at. My goal as a lucid dreamer early on and my basic intent uh, throughout was to understand the actual nature of reality. And, and I don't know why I thought lucid dreaming might be a, a path to that, but, but uh, it, it was really my true intent. I, I wanted to understand what is the actual nature of reality? How, how are things created? Why, why do things exist as they do? And, and lucid dreaming is beautiful for that because it's so mentally reflective and mentally dynamic. And, and so for, for those who haven't had a lot of lucid dreams, I'll just explain what I mean by that. Uh, for example, uh, let's say you became lucidly aware and wanted to fly through that wall. You know the wall is composed of dream stuff, and, and so you ought to be able to fly right through it. And so once in a lucid dream, I did that. I became lucidly aware in this kind of big sanctuary or something, and I flew out of it and found myself on kind of a college campus and was flying around. But then at the end of the lucid dream, I decided to fly back to the starting point. And as I flew up to that building from the other side, well, now the brick seems so... Uh, substantial and real and solid that when I got up to it, I got stuck halfway through <laughs> because I had this momentary doubt, this momentary expectation or belief that, that it was really substantial. And, and, uh, and then when I realized I was stuck halfway through, I, I realized how preposterous this was and I expected my way through it. But, but you realize in a lucid dream that that it will reflect your expectations and your beliefs. Uh, it'll reflect your intent and focus. And, and so as you get deeper into lucid dreaming, you realize that you um, have to observe your mind in the moment because your mind is helping to create, uh, to, to energize those projections uh, in the dream state. And, and for me, that, that was really, really important. But as I went deeper, I realized that fear was was what was holding me back, so I would always try to resolve my fears. And whenever I became lucidly aware and there was a lot of energy, I would go to where the energy was. 
So if I went over there and it's an epic World War II battle, I, I would sit there and observe it. Or if I went there and it was a giant wedding and celebration, uh, I would go there and observe. I always went to the area of the most energy. And, and that was so helpful as I uh, kept going deeper into lucid dreaming. But but I got to a certain point w- where it was, it was actually quite funny. <laughs> In some lucid dreams, I would see a banner in the sky, and the banner would say, trust, nothing to fear. And then other times I'd be in a lucid dream, and a voice behind me, which I assumed was the larger awareness, it would say, trust, nothing to fear. And so I felt as I kept going deeper and deeper that I was being encouraged and actually supported in my fearlessness. Uh, of continuing to go deeper and deeper. But but to get to that point, uh, after 20 years of lucid dreaming, when I decided that the only way to understand lucid dreaming, and if there really was a real reality, was to try to go beyond lucid dreaming. And so when I focused on that, uh, I began to have the most uh, unusual set of experiences. Um, I'd fall asleep at night at, at first, and and the entire night would be nothing but blue light. Yeah, and, and I remember the first time that happened, I woke up and I thought, what the hell? What, what do I put in my dream journal? Blue light? I mean, there is, there's no me, no action, no symbols, no plot, no nothing. It was, it's just the entire night, uh, this kind of blue light. And, and this kept occurring and reoccurring. And I, I remember one morning... Um, I went down to the breakfast table, and there's my wife, and, and, and she looked at me, and, and in a very concerned voice, she, she asked me, what, what's going on with you? What's happening? And I, I asked her why she would ask me that, and, and she said, well, last night, I woke up, and I think I looked at your face, and I've never seen somebody in such incredible bliss before. So, so what's, what's happening to you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to understand the actual nature of reality, and I'm having some pretty wild experiences. Yeah. And and so so there's stuff that began to happen after that but but that really surprised me. I, I'll I'll never I'll never forget the first time um uh the experience of, of just falling asleep and the entire night was blue light. Uh, I'll never forget just the surprise because I had read nothing right. that would suggest that even would occur. Uh, you, you have to realize that um, I grew up in the middle of Kansas um, right. Right. from a from a Protestant family, and, and we have a long line of uh, teachers and preachers in, in our family, and um, and and nothing nothing had uh, prepared me for, for at, when I was going deeper and deeper into lucid dreaming. So so uh, the, so. I can never say I was scared because I learned that fear keeps you in your comfort zone, but basically your comfort zone is death. It's, right. it's not growth. It's, it's not uh, expansion. It, it's not fulfillment. It, it's, your comfort zone is, is kind, of, uh, kind of a cemetery for the self. Yeah. Yeah, and if you want to grow, <laughs> if you want to grow, you, you, you got to keep pushing beyond your comfort zone and, uh, Resolving yeah. your fears, seeing that they're insubstantial, and, and moving forward. So, anyway, I couldn't agree more, Robert. And you beautifully said. I want to share a couple of things um, that came to mind around that. But in terms of the 
this comfort zone thing, you know, there's there's this pedagogical approach that you may have heard that I find completely applicable for these nocturnal practices, these kind of three concentric circles where, you know, the center of the circle, uh, the central circle is your comfort zone, your kind of bubble bath mentality, you know, basically where most of us in the Western world want to hang out. But it's just like you said, if you hang there, you're just going to drown in comfort. And so in order to really grow, one has to stretch into the next concentric circle, which is the, the danger zone, or not the danger zone, I should say, the learning zone, the stretch zone. And this is where growth really takes place. Um, and this is what these nocturnal practices invite, you know, the the opportunity to stretch outside of the proverbial comfort zone. And then, of course, the final concentric circle would, in fact, be the risk or danger zone where, you know, you stretch too far and the stretch can turn into a snap. <clears throat> but what I have discovered is that if we um, spend most of our lives in the comfort zone, our comfort zone gets smaller and smaller. We get fussier, more picky, more kind of irritable. And if we spend more and more time in our learning or stretch zone, our comfort zone gets bigger because we're able to tolerate more, we're able to accommodate and learn more. And so it's really delightful for me to hear what you share there. But the one thing I really want to talk to you a little bit about, because this is one of the things that struck me the most about your book, was in fact when you were talking about this experience of the blue light. Um, because to me, it was a complete kind of uh, articulation of luminosity yoga. At this point, you've probably been able to retrofit that because I know you read Tenzin Wanyo's book. Um, but this is completely confluent with what Tibetan Buddhists and, and Buddhist Buddhism refers to as sleep yoga or, or luminosity yoga. And it's really, for me, when I read it, it was like, hey, spot on, because according to the inner yogas of the Tibetan approach, when the mind resides in, in formless awareness, it resides you know, provisionally in the heart center. Um, and that has a kind of frequency or color or tone, whatever you want to describe to it. And in the Buddhist tantric point of view, that, that, that color is blue. And so for you to actually have... Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.